Alright guys, you're very welcome along to Heartlines. This is Shane and this is episode 36. Now this next guest I have on, she is from America, California originally. She's living in Ireland now. She is a doctor. Yes, Dr. Anne-Marie Finaldi. How are you doing, Anne-Marie? Welcome to the show. Oh, hi Shane. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I'm doing really well. Thanks. How are you? Good, good. Now I said doctor because you're you have a PhD in philosophy and your major is chemistry. When you started out, like yeah, when you were younger, like were you always into science growing up? Was that was that a big fascination for you? Yeah, I was always into like plants, animals, science. That kind of um, I just had interest in in anything that was really um, more science and nature related. Um, but I didn't really get hard into the sciences until I was about 14, 15 years old in high school. In the family, did did you have your were your family? Uh, involved in, in in the science field at all no actually like my family my parents they're not really into sciences but um i had some great teachers in high school particularly i had a great chemistry teacher which is where i decided to get into chemistry um i had a great biology teacher and a great um, oceanography teacher so um and i was very lucky that my school offered um, a wide range of uh, classes that were um that were in the sciences so um yeah i had a great interest from an early age because the school had provided me such such programs yeah science wasn't one of my majors i would have done it in my early kind of high school is that what you like is your brain that way do you like all those are you a mathematical person are you into the kind of formulas and does does that float your boat in a way yeah yeah i really do um i loved math uh growing up and i think that i like math and i like science because there are some very clear-cut right and wrong answers so and no matter which way you get to the answer there's always an answer you know so um (laughs) and if you don't know that's when you do research and research is finding the answers to things you don't know i yeah i really like uh, science and math in that respect that you can really dive into something and um just figure it out what's unknown is something new that you're pioneering and you're exploring and if it's not um if it's not new then there's kind of a clear clear answer for you and i like that so science was a big part of your life in high school so how does it work in 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 school? Like, do you have electives that you you pick in your in your when high school? Like science, did you pick science, or do you have to do it as a mandatory subject? Um, so in the U.S., the way it works is you do have to take a certain number of years of sciences, um, but you can either take, like you said, the the advanced classes or the um, what we call remedial classes, which means like the um, basic level classes. Um, I chose to take the advanced classes. Um, because I was more interested in it. Um, and then I got to choose different subjects. So there's certain subjects you have to take. So I believe uh, chemistry is a subject you have to take. Physics is a subject you have to take. But then you get to choose. So I chose like oceanography. Um, I think biology is one you have to take. So they have uh, assigned sciences and then they have like elective sciences, which if you want to take them, you can, but you don't have to take them. Um, so uh, that's how that's how that works in high school and then when you get into college it's it's pretty much the same so you have certain required classes of sciences and then you have elective classes of sciences if you want to yeah uh, it's interesting you say you do oceanography i guess you're kind of on the west coast of america there's lots of like plates and and there's the pacific ocean is that the reason why they want you to do oceanography because if you do have an interest you could probably go into that field down the line or is that is there a reason behind why they do oceanography yeah, I think just being a um, 
being in a place where you're along the coast, it's so mm. easy to go access um, and study oceanography. Like if you yeah. if you wanted to do a field trip to the beach, they could just take everyone out to the beach and you can go, um, you know, you could go see the fish and things you're studying in the in the textbooks like in person you can go to the um the aquarium and, and things like that like in LA in San Diego um in Long Beach they have some of the amazing aquariums and things like that and um, um they have you just have such great access to the ocean so yeah. why not <laughs> why not study it so <laughs> yeah. that's probably why we have so many oceanography programs in Southern California um so I mentioned you're a doctor like you're not a doctor you can't physically take out my heart can you no <laughs> <laughs> no well I'm not an MD doctor which is the money doctor I'm the poor poor and hungry doctor which is the PhD type of doctor which means I just philosophize about everything and I don't actually like <laughs> I don't heal anyone <laughs> so how did you get into doing the, the PhD in chemistry like what did you study beforehand did you study in chemistry a degree in chemistry before you, you went on to do a PhD yeah, um, well, so actually my PhD program was five extra years. So basically I studied I studied chemistry in high school and I really liked it. And as I said, I had a really great teacher um, and he actually had a PhD in chemistry. So then I went on to college and I had to take organic chemistry as one of my required classes. So I went into college saying I'm going to, um, or I guess as you guys call it university, I went to university wanting to study science, but I didn't know what field. So I was, um, I was under declared um but I had to take organic chemistry as a required science class and um I really loved the class and I actually I just had such a great professor and again I was like I want to work with this person like I want to do research with him I got a grant a scholarship to do um a summer research program and I did some um research with that professor and then I got to meet a lot more of the PhD students who were already in the program there and I got to understand what a PhD program was like and so that's when I decided I wanted to get my degree in chemistry and go into getting a PhD in chemistry and then the way it works in the U.S. is like for certain sciences for for certain degrees, if you pursue a PhD in chemistry, if you're accepted into the program, um, that's a full scholarship. So they pay you basically to get your PhD. Um, so that's another incentive of why I did a PhD in chemistry, because that's a they're they're paying you. So why not? <laughs> so but it's they, not like it's not like that for all PhDs. There are okay. certain PhDs that you don't you have to pay for it yourself. Yeah. Are you paid like you are a faculty or are you paid like uh, from a bursary or, or some sort of scheme? Well, we're teaching assistants. We're, we're okay. research assistants, teaching assistants. So we're, we're not paid very well. We're paid. <laughs> <laughs> if you think of what teachers are paid and then you cut that in about half, <laughs> that's, that's about where we're at. Cause uh, teaching, teaching assistants don't make very much money. Research assistants don't make very much money. The stipend itself, the, the scholarship for the school and being at the school is a lot. Uh, I went to a school that was a very expensive private school and I would have never been able to afford it. Like to go, to go to school there at USC, it costs about sixty to seventy thousand dollars a year. So I would have never been able to pay that. Um, I was fortunate to get into the PhD program and have a scholarship there. So, so what you're saying in, in a roundabout way is you are from you are from like a high percentage of intel intelligent people that was selected to do this. Am I am, well, I, am, I, am, I, am, I, am I close or, or am I miles off? 
I mean, you could you could put it that way, but I don't think of myself that way. <laughs> I guess that would be an accurate uh, description, but I wouldn't say that about myself. Like, I don't think of myself in that way. Um, yeah, I think that, in my opinion, you don't really need a higher level of intelligence to do a PhD. You just need to be persistent and wanting to do it. That's my opinion. But yeah, I guess there are um, a lot fewer people who do PhDs than um, lower level degrees, like just bachelor's and master's degrees. And you were also saying about like you're a teacher assistant. In in some ways, you're saying that you're persistent to be like uh, to be a PhD student, but in a way, in a way, it can work both ways. Like the actual professor could just be using you in a way and just using you to maybe you know do his part of the job. You know, maybe would you find that like would some professors kind of get a bit lazy and kind of say this person's gonna like this person's really intelligent. I might let let that person do the class today or whatever. Or did you ever do classes or anything like that for? Oh yeah, definitely. Like, mm. um, well, we didn't do, we didn't do many of the lectures. I think I did one or two lectures once okay. um, for the whole class, but we, we more like run the labs and grade the exams and grade all the like homework and papers and stuff. So we definitely are there to do the grunt work and the work <laughs> that the teacher does not want to do, answer all the questions and office hours and things like that. It really depends on the professor. Cause I've worked mm. with almost all of them when they were teaching it, all the organic chemistry professors at USC and I can just say that it really depends on the professor how much uh, how much you feel like um, you know they're putting in the same amount of work as you so some professors will stay in grade exams with you and make sure that you understand everything and that um, you're grading it the way they want it to be graded and then there's other professors who don't show up to the grading sessions and just kind of let the let the graduate students grade the exams and yeah um, it just it really depends. Now you went to USC, uh, it's University of Southern California. Is there, t- is there University of California and University of Southern California? And what's the difference or what, locationally, how far away are they? Uh, so, um, yeah, it's, it's University of Southern California. So USC um, is a private school and University of California are public schools. So I went to a University of California, Riverside for my undergraduate degree, for my bachelor's degree. And then I went on to USC, which is a private school. So um, the difference is, um, I think you're thinking between UCLA and USC. Mm. So UCLA, um, University of California, Los Angeles is based in, uh, I think it's, Westwood <laughs> so someone's gonna tell me this is wrong um but it's not uh, um it's not in downtown LA so um USC is based in downtown LA we're not that far apart though our two schools are maybe like 10 miles from each other or something like that and you said public and private so is, is there a difference because like from what I know been told by a few of my American friends I met over the years or or, or people talking on the media that like education in america is quite expensive for college so would you not have to pay the same kind of fees or do they covered your fees in the private school versus you paid for your fees in the actual public school no it kind of works the same in both schools okay. so if you um for undergraduate um if you get in um you could you could apply for scholarships which are basically free money for you to go to school there so if you were um if you had exceptional um grades or if you were a certain minority group they would offer you a scholarship if you applied for for one. If not, then you would pay for it out of pocket. The way it works with certain PhD programs is that everyone gets a scholarship if you're going for a chemistry PhD. Um, so that means that um, they pay for your all, all five years of school. So you get classes and, and everything just like any other school program. But then um, they also pay you a bit 
to, like I said, teach teaching assist or do research assist. So you get um, a small amount of money paid as well. So they're paying you to go to school to get your degree. That's really good. Yeah. I, I didn't know PhDs, as you said, some PhDs, they pay for you and other PhDs, you pay for yourself. So if you are, if you are paying for yourself, how much would you expect to pay for a PhD in, in your field? Um, you really shouldn't be paying for a PhD in chemistry. Like I would not advise <laughs> that. I would not, I would not pay for one and I don't think anyone else should, but there's okay. other subject, there's other subjects, maybe like psychology oh. or something okay. else that yeah. where you'd pay. Um, in that case, it can vary wildly. Um, but those, those might be like two year PhD programs, mm. um, or, or something where you might pay, I don't know, a hundred thousand dollars total or or $150,000 total. It just depends. But yeah, the higher up you go, the more expensive it will be. And also like private schools cost generally more than public schools do. You can find all different sorts in the US. So like you can find colleges that offer classes for like $100 a unit or something. And you, you can find colleges like USC that is like one of the top five most expensive colleges. So in the US or in the world? Yeah. No, in the US. Uh, Still, no, I don't think in the world. No. <laughs> that's that's very high up there, you know? Top five. Wow. Now, so, so five years, the culmination of your five years, you had to do a thesis. And I have the, the wording here and you can explain this because this I'm a layman here. So I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to say the words and, and I'm going to try to make sense of what uh, your thesis was about. Okay. Okay. And your title for your thesis was Lipid Mediators and potential modulators of GRP78. Explain what that's about. (laughs) Well, it's, it's two different, it's two different things. So um, one portion, I did studies on lipid mediators. And uh, the other portion was on uh, potential modulators of GRP78. So I'll just start with the lipid mediators. I'll just give you a very broad, basic idea. So basically, um, any kind of injury or infection you have in your body, um, you'll end up having inflammation. And basically, lipid mediators, they signal, they, they cause you to have inflammation to signal to start the inflammation, but then they also um, are metabolized to resolve the inflammation. So um, lipid mediators, sorry, I should explain what they are, are omega-3 fatty acids or omega fatty acids, polyunsaturated fatty acids, um, these long chain fatty acids that you would find in fish oil, in um, breast milk, um, things that are extremely important for brain development, eye development, and so forth. So basically, your body metabolizes these omega-3 fatty acids or polyunsaturated fatty acids, and it uses them to signal your inflammation pathways. And what I wanted to do, so there's a very basic one, it's called DHA. Um, <laughs> docosahexaenoic acid and um <laughs> it's it's one of the most simple but one of the most important um uh, omega-3 fatty acids or sorry polyunsaturated fatty acids and um i wanted to add um a tag onto the end of that and the idea was um i would synthesize this molecule and i would have a tag on it and then after it was fed to a rat or a mouse or something like that it could be captured using that tag so um it would be a way of finding where it would light up in the brain when it's metabolized where exactly it's being metabolized and how it's being metabolized so the idea is you kind of fish like you could fish it back out 
of the brain after it was metabolized and see exactly how and why it was uh, reacting in that way. So it was kind of um, cutting edge at the time of my thesis. Now I think a lot of people are doing, um, it's called click chemistry was the type of uh, chemistry I was doing to get this tag to click to the other piece. It's a lot more widespread now, I think, in living animals. But at the time it had just happened. So it was kind of a, um, a new idea to give an animal um, a tagged molecule such as uh, DHA that's been tagged and then um, give them the, the substrate and, and let them pull out that molecule and see exactly what had happened to it. And then the, the second part is just yeah. um, GRP78 is a, a, a protein that's um, overexpressed in breast cancer cells. And we were looking for certain molecules that could downregulate or um, suppress uh, GRP78 in breast cancer cells. Um, I didn't work on that for a very long period of time. Time. Honestly, um, I worked more on the lipid mediators for most of my thesis. That came along in the last, I say, last year, just uh, just very quickly. Compiling your thesis, there was practical work as well. Like, what was and if there was practical work, was it over a certain amount of time? Was it over the last year of your the, of your 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 time in, as a PhD student or assistant? So the way uh, most chemistry programs work is that you do um, you do your first two years as um, classes like full classes and full teaching. By the end of your first year or in the beginning of your second year, you should start to find your research advisor and you should start to see um, who you're going to be doing your research with. So um, so you do your classes for your first two years, you find your research advisor, and then um, you do some qualifying exams as well. So there's some, some written exams where you have to come up with original research ideas and propose them to a committee and say, I propose this, and then they'll ask you questions and see if, if, if it won't work or if it will work. So you go through your examinations and things like that. And then for the, I'd say the last three years are just a solid research, but you could also be teaching during that time as well. So I was teaching and doing research. You start doing research as soon as you find your research advisor. So you, you should find your research advisor in by the beginning of your second year. So you should be doing three to four years of, of hard research. So you're, it's constant. You're constant. It's, it's like you're in your final year of your, of, of your degree, but you're also working as well, which is hard because I remember when I done my degree, I done it in business marketing. And the final year, I didn't have time to, to, to really work, you know, per se. So you have to work as well as it must have been long days, long nights sort of thing, was it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it depends on your professor, because if your professor has a lot of good funding, so some professors have grants from the government or from mm. um, pharmaceutical companies. And if they have a really good grant, you may not have to uh, do research. So um, so then they would just pay you directly out of their out of their grant. But um, um, a lot of professors don't have grants or they also just don't want to pay their students out of their grants. So they will um, make you teach as well. And yeah, I would do I would do pretty long days. My last year before I graduated, I was doing probably 12 hour days every day. But then you try to learn how to manage your time as well. So when you can get away with it, you try to set up reactions that need to go overnight and, and then you can like leave a little bit early because nothing's going to happen. You just go home. You learn how to manage your time when you when you can. But then there will also be really critical reactions that you have to stay in the lab for that you just can't like leave and you have to do so much. And those sometimes are like 10 to 12 hours. So you'll do one thing and it'll need to stir for an hour and then you come back and you need to do something else for an hour 
and then you, you know and it and it's it's a process that you really can't leave it and you've worked for i don't know sometimes five six months or a year on this on this thing so you really cannot afford to like uh, to waste it <laughs> you yeah. know so you, you stay there and you and you watch it and you make sure it <laughs> yeah, works <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> after you you got your phd and, and how does it work what what's a grading system like for a phd is there a grading system yeah there is actually grading systems well so i mean i'm not trying to toot my own horn here but I did I was a valedictorian in high school I think you know how that system works in in high school you get um, a 4.0 GPA straight A's right um, and then when you go into college it's um, it's the same thing but a lot of colleges don't do any kind of like plus or minuses it's just a b c d and that's it and right. that's one two three four yeah. 4.0 being an a um, now in, in the PhD program um, it's a lot more competitive and it's a lot more cutthroat. So basically you have to maintain a 3.5 GPA. If it drops below that, they will, um, they will put you on a, I think a notice, something like that for one semester in order to pull up your GPA. And if you can't, then you will be removed from the program. So because they're paying all your classes and they're giving you all of this money to get this PhD, they don't accept anyone getting less than a 3.5 GPA. I did fairly well in all my classes, obviously got my PhD. So <laughs> um, I think I struggled with one class, but honestly, all, all it takes is one, one class to, to really screw up your GPA. So, you know, if you got a C in one class, you need to be getting perfect A's in all your other classes in order to just uh, make up for that. Now I didn't end up with a C in that class, but I'm just saying, just for instance, if you got a C, mm. you would need to make sure that you overcompensate and everything else just to make up for it. And you were saying about, um, in the PhD, well, I, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the PhD. The reason why it's so competitive is because the research you are doing is, is important because it might be used down the line and, and it has to be correct. It has to be done with, you know, it has to be done perfectly. If it's not done perfectly, it's kind of a waste of your time and the professor's time and whoever else is involved in helping you get your PhD, you know? Is that, is that, mm -hmm. am I right in thinking that way, uh, that way or? I think, I think there's that. And it's also, it's just a huge investment for the school. So okay. they're investing, they're investing in you and hoping they're going to get a return on it. Mm. The, the funny thing is, the interesting thing is, is that the university owns 50% of all the patents. So if you do any research work as a graduate student, or even as a professor in a university, um, the university automatically gets 50% of your patent. So if that patent is sold one day for millions um, the people who actually thought of the idea created the idea did all of the work on the idea may only see like a tiny amount off of that patent um, because uh, if the school gets 50 percent and the professor probably gets like um, 30 or 40 percent you may end up with like 10 percent of the patent even if you came up with the entire idea you did all the experiments and you proved everything and you wrote the paper and your professor filed the patent and looked everything over but the school could still take the majority of it yeah you've signed away that kind of right like when you signed up for the PSG per se? Yeah, I th well, I think when you file the patent, they make you sign paperwork that's basically saying the school owns 50% of your patent. So straight away. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, that's interesting. That's the way that like your professor basically can claim your work pretty much. They definitely can. Um, and you've, you've seen it. Well, you will see it in 
science all over is that a professor um, has a, a brilliant student who comes up with a brilliant idea and um, it ends up winning them. It ends up winning the professor a Nobel Prize or something along those lines. Now, it's really hard to differentiate who came up with the original idea. Did the student actually have the idea first or did the professor have the idea? But that's the way science works, unfortunately. <laughs> has there been any in, in when your time has there been any people, any any your students or professors who went on and got like prizes like that, for, like Nobel prizes and, and like decorated uh, accolades in the field of science? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, the building I worked in, there was a, a Nobel prize winner, George Ola, Dr. George Ola. Um, he's now since passed. His graduate student at the time who worked on the um, science that they ended up winning the Nobel prize for, he ended up winning the Nobel prize for, um, was Dr. Prakash. And Dr. Prakash um, was taken along as well. And it was a really good relationship you could see between um, the original professor and his his graduate student going into now another professor and his Nobel Prize winning yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, alumni. Yeah, You can't really base someone's success off of the Nobel Prize because it's a committee of people deciding what is the most important or what was the most valuable for, for that year. And it's very subjective. And there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of politics involved in the Nobel Prize selection. So um, even when someone has a Nobel Prize, it's hard to say that's the end all be all. If they don't have a Nobel Prize, there's some still some amazing discoveries that people have done that should have gotten a Nobel Prize. Yeah, like I, I was looking at the the table of elements. It's a long time to look at the table of elements, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's up to 100, 118 elements as of 2020. And I, I just lo- looked at the because that's how I think I looked at the funny ones, you know, the, the ones are like, what? There's, there's actually an element called Californium. Do you know that? Yeah. Yeah. And also <laughs> Einsteinium as well. Mm-hmm. And Einsteinium was, um, it was a particle that was, uh, was extracted from the first uh, test of a H-bomb in 1952 in Marshall Islands. There you go. See? Oh, look at you. <laughs> Scientists out there who, who wouldn't want a, a periodical, uh, element uh, in their name or uh, who wouldn't want to find an element you know what i mean mm-hmm. is all i know so is, what is so what's basis. your favorite element then uh potassium is k or um what's fe iron there you go i, I like those two I, I don't know but i don't know if i have a favorite do, do you have a do you have a favorite element well i guess i'm i should say carbon but i'd probably go with uh with fluorine or something more exciting <laughs> yeah 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 i like that yeah <laughs> It's just you see you know how they how how are they how they are made up. I just see letters. You see the actual atoms and molecules and protons and electrons. It just that 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 lights up, up your brain. You're like, hey, me. I'm like, all I see is letters, and I see like I I if I see like a ingredients on a on a product or something, I'll, I'll go, oh, it contains that, but I don't know anything more than that. You know, it's very limited kind of in the way I think about elements. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like I like being able to read the um, ingredients or read um, the contents of a, like a shampoo or something and know what they've put in it and be <laughs> like this this is just soap basically with some with some flower oil or whatever. But um, no, it's um, it's nice to to have that background because it does help me in everyday life more than I would have expected it to. So food science has become a real thing now. Like it's yeah. it's actually like it's very interesting. Um, but yeah, chemistry is everywhere. Like I feel like it it is it is a superpower almost to know what everything is made of or to to be able to figure out um, you know how things are made just by by looking at them, just knowing uh, 
what the chemicals are, mm. knowing how knowing how something is going to react when you add it to something else. Like I feel like that is a big advantage. Um, it is very useful, especially if you're just even cleaning. Like so many cleaning products are just pure chemicals. Yeah. <laughs> and people always add the wrong cleaning products to each other, and then they end up like passing out or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's interesting because um, they had uh, recently discontinued some hand sanitizer because it had mm. methanol in it, and um, every time that I opened this hand sanitizer, I thought this smells like methanol. And I was right. Like it was methanol, but I kept doubting myself because I thought there's no way they could put methanol in a hand sanitizer. Uh, now I, in, in a PhD field, I mean, it's become like looking at the, the world of a PhD student, like with like TV shows and, and like, no, we're not like the go Big there. Bang Theory. Yeah, we're not going to go on, there. Go on. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. But it's, it's brought it into the mainstream a bit, okay? It's made PhD students glamour, they've glamorized them and made them into a kind of rock star sort of thing. So yeah. from your point of view, who was your kind of rock star kind of scientist? Who, who do you, or who have you ever, have you ever met any kind of uh, quote unquote rock star scientists who are like in the mainstream now? Oh, oh, that's a good question. Um, well, like, okay, if I had to pick a, like, a rock star from the past that I've never, couldn't ever meet because they've passed away, okay. um, I would say, like, Mary Curie, obviously. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, in modern day, oh, there's, there's a ton of chemists who I've gotten to meet at, like, ACS conventions and things. They're called American Chemical Society. You know, you, you buy their, their chemistry book and you get them to sign it, and it's all very nerdy. It's all very fa fangirling. Um, I got to meet my professor's professor, so it was like I'm, like, his grand daughter almost in a weird way <laughs> um, um i got to meet him who was casey nicolau um and he's brilliant um he was one a, a good one to meet i got to meet um barry sharpless which is also another amazing professor um i got to meet uh, valeri Fokin. he was a chemist who actually worked in my research group but many years before me and he actually was one of the ones who came up with the original idea for click chemistry i ended up using that as my idea for my thesis click chemistry so i look up to him in a way because he he built the building blocks that i was able to then build upon and use in a way so um yeah no i i have so many though i feel like i'm not doing justice but i will say that like sometimes you don't want to meet your idols either <laughs> sometimes you, you have this great idea because their chemistry is so elegant and you're reading their papers and you're like this person is brilliant and then you meet them in real life and you're like oh they're just a nerd like me and <laughs> they're not as exciting or they're not a real rock star like you're, like you're making it out to me <laughs> you know? yeah yeah that's what that's what that's what the big bang theory is kind of like it kind of shows it, it these guys like on the face of it they're all kind of nerdy kind of would you say nerds or geeks nerds say nerds i i go with either i'm not offended by either i think they're both <laughs> good but nerds yeah okay so that kind of nerd culture and they're and they're again they're, their nerd culture would like would be into you know star trek do you, do you have you met ever met any anyone from like, into star trek or star wars or something? Um, I did watch the original Star Trek, but I didn't really get into any of the newer stuff. Yeah. I've seen like some episodes here and there. I was, I love Star Wars. I'm big into Star Wars. Yeah. Um, but I would say, no, I haven't actually met anyone from, I've never gone to a comic con. Let me say that right yeah. now. Although I have a ton of friends who have, yeah. um, I've never, I've never done any of that kind of nerdy level of stuff, I guess. <laughs> 
but yeah there are a lot of people in my uh you know that graduated with me who did do that kind of stuff who did yeah. do a lot of cause cosplaying and star trekking whatever <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I didn't, I didn't get into it that much. I I would watch and enjoy, but I wasn't like that nerdy, I guess. (laughs) Apart from that, I I watched lots of sciencey programs, but I don't understand the, the certain things, certain wording and stuff. That's where you come in, Uh, you know, um, (laughs) science is, is, is around us everywhere. You know, you know, science is used for manufacturing. It's used in, in products. It's used in everything, you know, and, and speaking of day to day, so when you finished up your PhD, did you uh, actively look for work in the science field, or did you go? Did you did you go elsewhere when you finished up your PhD? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I, I originally thought I will go into teaching because mm. I really enjoyed teaching. I had done it for the last five years, and I thought that was what I wanted to do. So I started looking at um, like community colleges and like. Um, junior colleges that I could apply for teaching positions at. And I was doing that, um, but I wasn't having very much luck. Um, And then I thought about um, looking at industry jobs as well. Um, The issue with industry jobs is they're not very stable. So if you go to work for a company like Amgen or, you know, one of the bigger companies, they may hire you on for a 12 month contract or a six month contract. And then after that, they just get someone else because keeping someone on long term who's a who has a PhD is quite expensive, especially in industry. I also didn't really want to be working at a fume hood for the rest of my life because I felt like uh, the chemicals are very toxic Mm. and um, just it's not it's not what I wanted to really be doing. Uh, I didn't want to be exposing myself for for the long term so I wasn't really interested in going in the industry route and I also felt it's just too competitive and too cutthroat for my liking but then I I had heard about a job opening in health and safety uh in a company in Jacobs Engineering and I heard of it through um I had tutored a student and his father um had told me of it and said that I might be right for it so um I put in an application and I got a job interview and yeah I was really uh happy to get the the job now it was obviously I, I've segued now out of chemistry, hard chemistry, but I still do get to use my degree in a very broad sense. But most people don't understand how I um, transitioned from one to the other. But when I originally came into Jacobs, I was doing health and safety training coordinating. So I was more focusing on the like training aspect of chemical handling and um, just uh, chemicals in general. And then I just um, transitioned into all construction safety. So then I started learning and taking classes and things to, to learn about cranes and lifting and rigging and whatever else. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to go the traditional route. A lot of people do see that there's only they think there's only two paths. There's either academia and mm. you stay and you be a professor forever or there's industry. So like in my mind, in teaching, it can become a bit like Groundhog Day. You do the same course, the same book over and over and the students ask you the same questions and you'll never you'll never get any kind of career advancement above a certain level, really. Like it's very hard to make more than a certain amount of money there. Um, yeah. And then in the other aspect, it's very, it's very interesting but it's very fast paced and you have to keep up and you have to be competitive and you have to want to get your, you know, your product or your chemical out first. And um, I just didn't feel like either of those environments were as going to be as interesting to me as something that was a bit more outside of chemistry. I think whatever you do, 
you just need to apply yourself mm. and enjoy it and try to find a way to enjoy it. And if you're not enjoying it, then change to something else. It's not the end of the world. I think that's the thing that people don't understand. Like I did chemistry up until I was 28 years old. Mm. And like, I love chemistry. I think chemistry is amazing. But like, that doesn't mean that you don't go and try a different career or try something else. Like, I just love learning in general. I love learning about new things. I love doing new things. And like, you can't do that if you just say, stay set in doing the exact same thing over and over again. And I feel like I've learned so much more about who I am as a person from challenging myself rather than just staying set in chemistry and just continuing on in chemistry. Like I could have done that. That would have been fine. And I probably would have lived a, a perfectly fine life. Mm. But like, I, I'm very happy transitioning out of that because I felt like even though I love chemistry, I've learned more about myself and about my capabilities doing something else. It's, it's easy to do something that you feel like you're good at. It's hard to do something that you've never done before. And that's where you really have to bring, like pull it out of yourself and see what, what you're really made of. That's true. And also in one respect, you're also a woman on a construction site. Like it, it, it's an, it's an, it's not, it's a new thing to see women on construction sites and it's good to see diversity as well. But do you find that challenging in some ways to be a woman on, on a construction site in, in a certain uh, area or, or is it just a run of the mill kind of uh, job uh, or day, day in day I job think, for you? No, I think it's gotten a lot better for females on construction sites. I think yeah. it's definitely um, like it back in the day, it used to be a lot worse. I think um, it's definitely gotten better. It's come a long way, but I think it still has a long way to go in terms of equality and uh, just treat general treatment or mm. general respect, respect of women on construction sites. But I have to say it, it's fun. I like it. It's every day is different. And um, I really like to feel like I'm making a difference. So working in safety, um, you feel like you're, you can physically see what you're improving on a daily basis and you can try to get something done and then you do it and you, you get that sense of accomplishment, you know, and helping people to stay safe. Like, you know, that you prevented someone from getting seriously injured, that that's a really good feeling, you know? And I think that, um, if you are really passionate about your work and you're, you're, you're trying your best, most of the people, most of the people on the construction site see that and they're very nice to you they're not mean to you they they just want to let you do your job and they know you're just doing your job it's hard because just being safety in general you know construction workers might have the feeling of like oh you're you're the cop or you're the bad guy but they also know you're doing your job and you're keeping them safe and ultimately everyone just wants to go home safe everyone just wants to be okay you know yeah it's a very important job safety in any any job i mean if someone puts a foot wrong like a procedure that could have a domino effect yeah definitely and there's like there's so many aspects to safety now people are starting to realize how much like mental health plays a huge role in safety how key your mental health is for you to be able to actually work safely it, it's it's just it's so important people don't understand how safety really interconnects to cost and schedule and ev all these other things they think that let's just rush and get it done well that ends up usually costing a lot more money a lot more time if you if you stop and do it properly and do it safely you'll save a lot of time you'll save a lot of money and no one gets hurt then that's the most important thing so i know you you worked for jacob engineering how long were you in switzerland for yeah i was in switzerland for about two and a half years oh. um which was amazing yeah it was a it was a really great experience and a, like an experience you can grow from honestly 
do you speak German or there's depending on depending on the side of Switzerland, you could have Italian, you could have French, you could have German, Flemish. You speak what's German, Sprechersi Deutsch? Uh, just a little bit, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I don't even, I don't even want to like, yeah, I can, yeah. I can speak, I can speak enough to get by, honestly. Um, yeah. they speak in in Switzerland, they speak Swissi Deutsch, <laughs> okay, yeah. um, which is a little bit different than uh, High German, but it, yeah, I can speak just enough to get by. And Italian, I do speak a little bit more of. Um, I could maybe hold a conversation in Italian. Um, French, I've learned some words, but I wouldn't say that I can really speak French. <laughs> Oh. So I went, to, I, I went outside, like, um, this is another thing about the U.S. is that you can take, um, you could take like language courses or whatever in a community college and then trade them in for like high school credits. So you could do some like um, some summer school and get ahead of the program. And then you don't, you don't have to take like a language during the year. You could take like art or something else. Is community college only through the summer? Because uh, I didn't know. No, it's it's through the whole year. Like okay. they do it all the time. But anyways, that, sorry, I got you off track. So which which language did you do? French. I For how a, many years? Uh, six. First year or first uh, year in high school or secondary school, we call it. And then mm-hmm. sixth year, I done it all the way through on on a past level. I got a B three. I was happy with that. We do. They have to do a spoken uh, word test and also a written word as well. So it's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, just. It's like anything. I, I, if you're not immersing yourself in in a culture, you're gonna lose it, you know. But also as well, you've traveled a bit, so you've traveled Switzerland, UK, Ireland. But also, your cat has a passport. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> he's a fancy cat. Um, no, when I moved to <laughs> when I moved to Switzerland. Um, in order for him to be able to like uh, go around wherever in Europe, he needed a, they needed to give him a pet passport. So um, I took him to the vet and they gave him this little uh, passport. It, it's literally the same as like a human passport, but it's a Swiss pet passport and it's got his picture in it and it's got all his medical details. And so if you travel within the EU, um, you can just show them the pet passport and they know that he can, he can go on to the next country. So that's how I got him into the UK was with his Swiss pet passport. <laughs> and then from the UK, um, yeah, I decided to move to Ireland, as you know. Yeah. And we I took him over on the Stena line, the the boat. Which which I don't think he appreciated. He hates he hates flying and he hates cars, but I think the boat was the worst for him. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. So, yeah, it, I, I, he must know he has a passport. Like I mean, some some Americans don't even have a passport. Like he's so privileged in that regard. You know what I mean? He must know. <laughs> yeah. like I have a passport. I can go wherever I want. You know, I could you could I could fly. He could fly anywhere in the world. Can he? Well, if I was going to take him like back to the US, he'd, he'd probably have to get a couple vet checks like put okay, into yeah. the passport to yeah. show, you know, whatever. But yeah, basically, yeah, he could go wherever he wants. He's <laughs> he's a good cat. Um, no, he is a very privileged, privileged, uh, spoiled, <laughs> spoiled boy. Um, but I love him so much. Um, what age is your cat now? 
He's almost 11. He's wow. almost 11. So yeah. did, you, did you have him all the way through your PhD as well? Yeah. No, I had him since he was born. So my um, my mother's cat in California is an outside cat and she had kittens and he was one of the kittens and I kind of rescued him and made him an indoor cat and, and had him uh, and he the life suits him. He doesn't want to go outside. He loves his luxury. He loves to sit on the bed. He does not want to go outside. He was with me all through... Um, grad school and then jacobs and as i said switzerland mm. um uk and now ireland so um he's been a he's been a major part of my life so it, yeah i i love him to pieces like <laughs> does he appreciate does he appreciate the rain every day looking at the window going this isn't california this is not sunny you know what funny enough like if i uh, if there is a bit of sun and i roll up the blinds he will lay out in that patch of sun on yeah. the carpet and he and he looks so happy and he's <laughs> rolling around in yeah. it and everything but you know he has all his cozy heaters he has yeah. his own bedroom in my apartment so yeah. he's a very happy cat That's but good. he does love he loves the sun he loves it when it comes out so i do feel a little bit bad that there's not enough sun for him to shine through the windows in ireland sometimes but yeah. he makes he makes do with with a lot. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> if someone was to sit there and doing a PhD in, in the science field, what advice would you offer uh, from your experience? You know, like what what, what pitfalls or, or what, what uh, kind of advice mm. would you give them starting out on a journey of a PhD? I would say this is going to be controversial and this is the untold secret. This is the big secret that everyone knows in sciences, but no one wants to say unless yeah. you're in a, in a private discussion. So, but I'll say it publicly. I'll, I'll have the guts to say this publicly, which is <laughs> go for, go for the PhD program, but drop out with your masters. And here's why, because if you go for a master's program, it costs you money and you pay for it out of your pocket. Okay. If you go for a PhD program and you drop out after two years, after you finished your classes, um, then that means that the school paid for your you to get your master's. Okay. And the thing is, is that a master's program, uh, a master's degree is a bit more hireable, is, is, is better for the job market than mm. a PhD, in all honesty. A PhD, you can make a bit more money, a little bit, but like a master's, there's more jobs available to you because you're not as expensive as a PhD and maybe you're more trainable. So I feel as though there's more jobs open to masters, people who have a master's degree than have a PhD, unless you want to go into the into academia. If you want to go into academia, get a PhD and that's it. That's good. You know, you're all good. But if you want to go into industry or if you want to go into a different career like construction or something else, take a master's after after your second year, make your life a lot easier. The other thing I would say is like for anyone considering a PhD, I think that it is worth it. It is amazing. Like it will it will challenge you to really reach within yourself to to say, do I want to really do this? Like, is this am I willing to spend the next five years of my life doing this? I think the answer is yes. Just choose your choose your advisor very carefully because that really determines how your life is going to be for the next five years or whatever, three years. So make sure that you choose your, your research advisor very carefully and make sure that you're doing something that you actually want to be doing. It, it can be so rewarding. It can be so amazing, but don't define yourself just on that aspect of the PhD or don't box yourself into doing that for the rest of your life just because that's what you got your PhD in. Like I said, I, I did a PhD in chemistry and I segued out of chemistry, but I was so, so... I'm so proud of what I did in chemistry 
And I'm also so happy that I got out of chemistry, even though I love chemistry. My point is, is that you can be, you can grow as a person, do things that are exciting and interesting that aren't necessarily in your field of study. You don't have to stay in pigeonholed into one subject for the rest of your life if you don't want to wise words again i don't think do people ever call you doctor because you have a doctorate or or you have a, 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 a like a doctor of philosophy uh yeah yeah people sometimes do call me dr finaldi just as like a joke as a laugh <laughs> but that's it like no one no one usually calls me that like none of my friends do uh, it's just as, as just as a joke yeah, well, yeah, you look, you, you've got a, you've got a, a, a doctor of philosophy, so you, I mean, you should use that more because you're a doctor, you know. I mean, you you couldn't do any like medical stuff, but you can do chemistry stuff, you know. I will say this one thing: the question I get asked the most, the question I get asked the most is like, "Do you watch Breaking Bad?" and "What do you think of Breaking Bad?" and I'm going to give you my answer, just so you know, so we're all clear. Okay. I do not watch Breaking Bad, and the reason I do not watch Breaking Bad is because making meth is a very, very, very simple thing to do. Okay, um, that's the point: is that any hillbilly in their backyard can make meth okay with the right supplies it doesn't take any talent and i think that when breaking bad came out all these people wanted to be chemists because um the main character is a chemist but um in reality you don't need to be a chemist to make meth there's nothing special about it and um i think it glorifies making something that's really really easy to make you know it's like if if someone says i want to be a chef because i know how to make cereal you know, like, it, it, or, or, you know, I want to be a chef so I can make cereal, you know, like something ridiculous like that. Like they should be making LSD or some other kind of drug that really glorifies chemistry. And then I would say they're chemists they're, That's respectable, but I'm not going to watch a show that talks about making meth because meth is so easy to make. <laughs> I thought it was well acted and that's coming from a person who doesn't know how to make meth and I never will. Okay. <laughs> Just, just for the government and anyone else who's listening, just so everyone knows, Shane does not know how to make meth. Okay? I haven't got a trailer at the back. No, I have. I, I will not be making meth anytime soon. Oh, that's good. Anyway, thank you, thank you, Doctor Anne Marie Finaldi. Um, thanks for coming on for the chat. I, I, I was, again, I didn't know when you're going to, when you're going to come on. I didn't know it was going to be sooner or later. I'm happy it's sooner because I think we got a lot, a lot of uh, depth there from experience of your PhD and, and what you're doing now. I know you're over here in Ireland still. You're working in the safety field and in construction and that kind of area, but doesn't want to go too much detail there. That's, that's more your current job. Your boss may be listening. We don't want that. Uh, and also <laughs> as well, uh, it's been great having you on. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Shane. Thanks, Amber. It was great. I enjoyed the conversation. Okay, thanks. Bye. Right, see you. Bye bye. See you. Bye. See you. And that was Dr. Anne Marie Finaldi, or Anne Marie Finaldi. Well, she's a PhD graduate in chemistry. So she's a doctor of philosophy, or her major is chemistry. Guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, comment. Remember, guys, you're always welcome here in Heartlines. Take it easy. Bye bye.